The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And I am delighted today to welcome back Dr. Michael Hansen. Dr. Hansen is a senior staff scientist with Consumers Union, which is the publisher of Consumer Reports. He currently works primarily on food safety issues. He speaks nationally and internationally on consumer union concerns such as mad cow disease, GMOs, pest management, and what we're going to be talking about today, drugs in our meat, antibiotics, and antibiotic resistance. Dr. Hansen, welcome. Nice to be with you again. Well, we have several topics on our plate today, one of which relates to the January issue of Consumer Reports, which is going to talk about a study done nationally looking at pork products, looking at what kinds of bacteria lurk in those products, as well as a pharmaceutical drug that we'll also cover. So let's start with the antibiotic resistance. You know, I, I think we've gotten to a point where we take antibiotics for granted. We've had the luxury of doing so. And yet that lack of awareness about the development of resistance, I think, is leading us down a treacherous path. That's true. Our publication this month, what we basically did is tested over some 200 pork products, primarily pork chops and ground pork. We looked for a range of pathogens, and then when we did find bacteria, we also looked at the rate of antibiotic resistance in them. And some of the results we found were a little bit concerning because of the bacteria that are there, there is a high degree of antibiotic resistance, and we were also quite surprised to find that over 69% of the pork had tested positive for Yersinia entrocolytica, and that has been associated with uh, diarrheal and other intestinal problems. And in fact, according to the CDC, there's roughly 100,000 cases of that a year. Hmm. Now, normally when we talk about bacteria in food, I think people are familiar with salmonella in chicken, for example. We've heard a lot of reports about E. coli. But Yersinia is not one that typically makes the headlines. No, and that's because... it's primarily found in, if it is food associated, it's uh, primarily found in pork. We did also test for salmonella and actually did not find much. And in fact, when the Food Safety Inspection Service of USDA recently actually did a market hog basket survey, and they also found fairly low levels of salmonella. They really didn't find Campylobacter. And what was interesting is they were going to test for Yersinia, but decided not to. So is Yersinia a fecal bacteria? Yeah, it's a, well, it's a gut bacteria. So that's how the contamination happens when gut contents get onto the carcass. And it should be pointed out that this genera of bacteria, Yersinia, that it's also the same genus that has uh, other members, for example, form the transmit plague Mm. and black death. So that's Yersinia pestis. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
All right. So consumers go to the supermarket and they've decided they'd like to get some pork for dinner. And whoa, we find out that 69% of the pork overall, yeah, it was 68% of the chops and 74% of the ground pork was positive for Yersinia. Now, if you cook the meat that can help kill that, but you also need to be concerned about cross-contamination. If you're putting these materials on a cutting board or something else that you then put a salad or greens in or where you're storing it in the refrigerator, there can be a cross-contamination that way. Right. You know, I always tell consumers that when you go to the grocery store and you're buying meat, just assume that there's going to be bacteria there and treat it as such. But in addition to having problematic bacteria present on the meat, there's also this problem of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And I really want to talk to you about how that happens. Well, the basic way that antibacterial resistance happens is there's some that occurs naturally in the environment. Because if you think about it, one of the ways that microorganisms protect themselves or that fight with each other is actually through the production of uh, antibiotics. The way we found actually our first antibiotic, the way penicillin was discovered, was that was back when... uh, Alexander Fleming actually noticed that there was no bacteria growing on this petri dish that had a nutrient medium in this circle surrounding this one bacterial growth in this. Since there was no bacteria there, they wondered why it was, and it was because this fungus at penicillium was excreting penicillin. So these are compounds that uh, bacteria often use among themselves, but also when you use antibiotics or when you use these class of uh, drugs, you put selection pressure for resistance to those drugs to spread through a bacterial population. So you're selecting for the genetic material that codes for resistance. And uh, since we have um, an industrialized food system where animals are often kept packed carefully together in huge uh, facilities in these confined animal feeding operations, that packing animals close together often stresses them out, makes it more easy for disease to pass among them. So these animals are often given uh, antibiotics. 80% of all the antibiotics used in the U.S. every year are given to animals rather than people. Yeah, and I think that probably would surprise many of our listeners because... Yes, previously up until they started requiring through a due for the animal drug user fee uh, amendments that were done in 2008, that started to require that the companies had to report the total quantities of antimicrobials that are sold or distributed every year. Before that, the companies would just, you know, estimate this. And this was a real debate because five or ten years ago, before we had these data, the companies would say, oh, the vast majority of antibiotics used in the U.S. come from human medicine, and that of all the antibiotics, it's, you know, 70% is human medicine, 30% is used for animals. You had the Union of Concerned Scientists did a study a little over 10 years ago authored by Dr. Charles Benbrook and colleagues, and that study was called Hogginet. And they calculated just on how animals tend to be raised. They calculated that uh, actually the majority of antibiotics uh, in the U.S. were used on animals not uh, human. So there was this, they were saying it's about 70-30 and the industry was saying no, it's just the reverse. And then once the data became available 
That is, when the Zadufa amendments went in in 2008, that data now had to be turned over to the government and that a summary of that had to be made available to the public. So we now have data for 2009 and 2010. And it's like 2.9 million or billion pounds. Uh, and when you look at that, uh, then there are FDA statistics for how much uh, antibiotics are used in human medicine. And you see that we now know 80% of the antibiotics used in the U.S. every year are in animal agriculture, not human so, and that's with uh, because of this uh, data reporting. And if we look more carefully, we'll see that the majority of that 80% of those antibiotics are given to animals for non-therapeutic purposes. They're put in the food and water. And in fact, in information that was sent to uh, Congressman Louise Slaughter, because they the law requires all these companies that sell these antibiotics to turn data over to the uh, government on how much they use on a monthly basis and uh, in what forms, whether uh, it's an antibiotic to be added to feed, to water, or injected. And the reason that's important is antibiotics that are added to the feed or water, that's really subtherapeutic use. Because it's hard if you give an animal, you're treating an animal with a, a drug just like a person, you give them an exact dose. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get known exact doses is through a pill that you give or an injection. You can't by just putting it in the feed or in water, you can't ensure an exact dose. And so that's usually uh, an indication of uh, non-therapeutic use or sub-therapeutic use. And uh, the data that was turned over to to Congressman Slaughter showed that only 3% of all those antimicrobials were actually injected. The vast majority is at like 74% is put in the feed. It's a medicated feed. Mm-hmm. And so we see that the vast majority of of uh, animal drugs are being given to animals, often in these confined uh, situations, and it's primarily for growth promotion purposes and then what they call disease prevention. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was recently at a meeting where there was an organization called Missouri Farmers Care, and there were a group of farmers who presented to a group of dietitians, and one of the hog farmers really made no apology for using antibiotics routinely like this prophylactically, And I was truly alarmed. You mentioned Louise Slaughter. I should bring up that Louise Slaughter is the only microbiologist in Congress. Exactly. And so that's why she understands these things. Mm -hmm. She's also the one that has uh, proposed, is pushing this, the bill is called PAMTA, P-A-M-T, and that's the the Preservation of Antimicrobial Treatment Act. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And that would functionally ban the use of antibiotics that are important in human medicine. It would ban their use in uh, animal agriculture, particularly for growth promotion and other non-therapeutic purposes. And just to let everyone know, Representative Slaughter is from New York. Now, she introduced the Preservation of Antibiotics for Medical Treatment Act, PAMTA, in 2007. It is now 2013. What's going on with the legislation? Well, and it gets submitted every year, but you know, there's the power of the industry is uh, actually uh, very strong. But but what happened in 2012? Um, 
you have to remember that there have been a couple of uh, court cases. I know a few years ago, NRDC and others actually told the FDA that they need to enforce their finding on um, tetracycline and penicillin, and this often shocks people, but it turns out 35 years ago, or in 1977, the FDA determined that neither penicillin nor tetracycline are safe when used for growth promotion purposes, that is when used at subtherapeutic levels because they can select for uh, resistance. They determined that back in 1977 and then the industry was supposed to have an opportunity to have a hearing uh, to present, uh, to, I guess, disagree with the agency. Well, what happened is that hearing never happened. And, in fact, the agency never took any action. And then uh, at the end of last year decided, well, we're going to have a voluntary. Uh, yes, we consider that uh, antibiotics shouldn't be given for growth promotion purposes, but we're not going to have a voluntary guidance right. on how to promote judicious use. Uh, and the court actually ruled that the FDA must uh, adhere by the law and they must either cancel those uses of uh, penicillin and tetracycline unless the company can show that those uses are safe. I see. And uh, so that happened in, I think, January of this year, and then also there was another uh, another decision in June by the same judge uh, again, telling the agency that they that they had to act. The agency tried to come back and say that this voluntary policy they had was could uh, work, and the court said no. So there's been some legal recognition that this is a problem, and that the agency hasn't been uh, acting strongly enough. Do you suspect that perhaps this year we will see some mandatory restrictions on antibiotics? I don't know. That would be a nice, and that's in part why, uh, because of this frustration over the inability of PAMTA to move and the increasing recognition that this is a problem, that's what led uh, Consumers Union in, in a part to start this Meet Without Drugs uh, campaign. And that's uh, this year we put out a publication uh, pointing out that uh, people can buy meat from animals raised without antibiotics, and we started a corporate campaign. We surveyed all the supermarket chains that that sell meat. As you know, if it's labeled organic, they cannot use antibiotics. But there's also meat that's often labeled raised without uh, antibiotics, and uh, that meat uh, that has that label. Uh, it can cost just as much or less or sometimes more than meat that is not labeled. And uh, we're focusing on trying to get Trader Joe's to only sell meat that is raised from animals that have not been treated with antibiotics. Let me take one quick break here and remind our listeners that we're speaking with Dr. Michael Hansen. He is a senior staff scientist at Consumers Union, and he focuses primarily on food safety issues, one of which we're talking about today, which is antibiotic use in livestock. I have to ask you, Dr. Hansen, there was something very interesting about this Consumer Reports study, and that was that the labels that say, uh, there's so many labels out there for consumers to be confused over, 
And yes, I believe that the organic label is the best guarantee in terms of providing meat to your family where the animals have not been given antibiotics. It is against the law to have an organic animal fed antibiotics. However, some of the antibiotics, the antibiotic resistant bacteria were also found in meat samples that had been labeled antibiotic free. So the antibiotic-free labels themselves really don't give consumers the same sense of security or guarantee as the organic label. Am I interpreting that correctly? Well, not necessarily, because you can find there have been some studies which have found these bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics also on organic meat. They're often of uh, lower in incidence, but... Part of the reason for that is you have to realize these bacteria are not only in the animals, they're in the environment, and and contamination can uh, happen anywhere. So, for example, if organic animals are slaughtered at a conventional facility, that facility is supposed to be cleaned between when organic animals are treated and non-organic animals are uh, treated. But there can be cross-contamination that happens that way, uh, and there are other uh, mechanisms where uh, the animals can get uh, infected uh, or uh, can get contaminated. I would say, though, though, that any listing of whether it's organic or if it says no antibiotics administered, those kind of labels, if animals are not being treated or given antibiotics, that reduces the selection pressure uh, for resistance. So in the long term, even if in these smaller term studies you don't necessarily see something, that doesn't mean that that there's no reason to, uh, for example, um, pursue either meat from animals that are raised without antibiotics or um, organic. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the great components of Consumers Union is it always gives consumers good tips on what we can do to prevent uh, consuming this food. And so one of the tips is to watch out for misleading labels and to remind consumers that the label natural has absolutely nothing to do with antibiotic use or how an animal was uh, That's raised. correct. In fact, they usually have to, there's often an asterisk on those meat packages because, the, to be truthful, they often have to say, all natural means is that uh, very little processing and no added ingredients. It doesn't say anything about how the animal was raised. So, for example, you could take a genetically engineered cloned animal, feed it irradiated food, uh, or you could feed it grain that has been irradiated uh, and also grown from engineered plants and sprayed with pesticides uh, and treated with antibiotics. That could all be in the feed. All natural means is minimal processing and no added ingredients. It doesn't really tell you anything about how the animal was uh, grown. And the unfortunate thing is is that the surveys show that that's often what people consider the most important label because what they think natural means is that it's raised in a more natural way, so that means you aren't using all these additives, you're not adding uh, antibiotics, you're not... 
um, adding sewage sludge or other things. But it doesn't. It yeah. now that doesn't mean that uh, that some companies may use that term natural. Coleman's beef, Coleman's I know calls their beef and meat a natural or Neiman's Ranch. Now they don't allow any use of antibiotics and it's pasture-fed animals and this and that. But uh, yes. Just that word natural is not uh, a very meaningful label. Okay. Well, I want to make sure that consumers know about this report and that it is published in the January 2013 issue of Consumer Reports. So I encourage our listeners to take a look at that. Is there anything else you want to say about antibiotic resistance before we move on to the other component of this report, which was the... Uh, no, well, just that... Um Antibiotic resistance is a serious problem, and the overuse of antibiotics in animal agriculture is a serious issue. We've done comments to the uh, agency, and I believe in January there will be a bill being uh, introduced by Senator or Congressman Waxman that will require even more data to be uh, gathered on these anti-antibiotics and for that data to be made publicly available. Because as it is now, this information that's uh, gathered, only summer reports are made uh, available to the public, and we think that a lot more of that data, exactly how much antibiotics are used on which species for which purposes in which forms, that should all be made available. And the agency has asked whether that would be a good idea. They did this advance notice of uh, proposed rulemaking, so... Mm-hmm. And I want, answered in the affirmative. And I want to let consumers know that if they go to consumersunion.org, you can read there the letters that Consumers Union sent to Secretary Vilsack and the head of the FDA to try to get some positive forward movement on this issue. It's very serious. I don't think consumers really understand the link between some of these, even the hospital-acquired infections that can come from contaminated meat coming into the hospital and people coming into the hospital who, who carry these bacteria. So it's complicated, and it's all connected. So I have a study here that shows new research estimates that the methicillin-resistant staph infections cost the U.S. hospitals $3.2 billion to $4.2 billion. So when we talk... Right, and some of that, as they say, is community-acquired, but they've now been able to, with some very good genetics, to be able to demonstrate that some of these... Uh, people that are getting sick in the hospital, that it's actually the methicillin, the Staphylococcus aureus that's methicillin resistance, uh, is derived from a pig source. So that would show that it's uh, livestock associated and that those sources from animals are now being demonstrated to um, be in the human population and can particularly and can be potentially causing illness. So mm-hmm. they can contribute to that problem. You know, before we go on to the ractopamine issue, I want to just mention that one of the dare I say propaganda messages we get from the industry is that well we have to raise meat with antibiotics otherwise it's going to cost more and Consumer Reports has consistently assured consumers that actually it's not going to cost that much. No, in fact, if you go to the uh, look at that report of ours, Meat on Drugs, you can actually look and see that there's a whole range depending on what the meat product is that sometimes it's 
just as cheap. It isn't any more expensive to buy the raised without antibiotics version. And I think an example of that is for chicken breasts, I believe. One of the cheapest places we found the ones raised without antibiotics was for like a dollar ninety-nine a pound at Trader Joe's. And that was actually the national average for just chicken breasts themselves was like over $2 and something. Mm-hmm. So you could actually buy the um, raised without antibiotic version for cheaper. So people can uh, look and do their own shopping, and we do. If you look at that uh, report we did, uh, we surveyed, I believe, uh, dozens and dozens, I think 60 or 70 different um, stores, and people can see the, the uh, data we came up with. Well, and I think it's important that when we start talking about cost, we do full cost accounting and we take into account the billion dollars that we're spending on these antibiotic resistant infections. Well, I would make that argument in general as well, that it is important to do what's called full cost accounting. But sometimes from the viewpoint of the individual, uh, you also, if you can, uh, it's good to show that you can sometimes even save money that way. Absolutely. So the Consumer Reports Meat on Drugs report was done in June of 2012, and that's also available on the Consumer Reports website, consumersunion.org, as well as a wonderful website that's a corollary to this, which is notinmyfood.org, and we'll have those uh, links available on our radio website. We just have a couple minutes, and I have to just touch on this one other topic in the January 2013 report, which is the drug ractopamine, which was used also in hogs, this time to promote growth and leanness. And just to remind our listeners that this particular drug is banned in the European Union, China, and Taiwan. Your comments? Uh, yes, this is a drug that is actually banned in a number or not allowed for use in a number of uh, countries. It was originally developed as an asthma medication, and uh, there's still questions about its safety, uh, both for humans and actually for animals. And there is a petition actually into the Food and Drug Administration uh, to say that they should follow the more stringent standards that have been developed internationally at Codex Alimentarius. Because right now, we allow up to 50 parts per billion of ractopamine in the meat. Uh, the Codex standard is 10 parts per billion. Consumers Union, we've called for the product to be pulled from the market. We don't think it should be allowed for uh, use. And the citizens' petition that went in has basically said that in the short term, the agency should look at this stricter safety standard from Codex and adopt that. And then I believe uh, there's a Freedom of Information Act request out right now for uh, information on ractopamine, and when the data from that comes in, there'll probably be a petition for this product to be banned as well. Should consumers just assume that this particular drug is used in the majority of pork that's produced? Uh, well, from it's been reported that Anywhere up to 70 to 80% of the pork might be from animals that have been treated with ractopamine. And this is something that's given right at the end of the animal's life for the last couple of weeks. 
Hmm. All right, we are out of time. So I'm going to once again refer people to the consumerreports.org website as well as not in my food. If you'll go and search that, you'll find a link to this report and more about ractopamine. Dr. Hansen, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. Dr. Michael Hansen is a senior staff scientist at Consumers Union, where he works on food safety issues. One of many is about antibiotics in animal feed. I want to. Uh, re- thank you very much, Melinda. Was uh, was an honor to be with you. Well, thank you, and I want to thank our listeners as well for joining us, and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Mm-hmm.